We are in Luke chapter 22 because I would like also to look at an Easter passage uh, this evening or what we might call a Passion Week uh, passage, the the last culminating moments of Jesus' earthly life before uh, the crucifixion. And so we're going to skip way ahead. We're just going to have one night where we're in Luke 22, and then as we come out of Easter, doing a little bit and getting back uh, where we were. But just one chance to have maybe what we think of as a typical Easter passage this evening. One, one of the books that I read in college that made a big impact on me, one of the first Christian books written for adults that I ever read was a book called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. It stayed one of my favorite books through the years. Uh, But this is what Philip Yancey says in in that book. Of the biographies that I've read, few devote more than 10% of their pages to the subject's death, including biographies of men like Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, each of these who died violent and politically significant deaths. The Gospels, though, devote nearly a third of their length to the climactic last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw death as the central mystery of Jesus. Only two of the gospels mention the events of Jesus's birth and all four offer only a few pages on his resurrection, but each chronicler gives a detailed account of the events leading to Jesus's death. Nothing remotely like it had happened before. Celestial beings slipped in and out of our dimension prior to the incarnation, Jacob's wrestler and Abraham's visitors among others, and a few humans even waked from the dead. But when the Son of God died on planet Earth, nature itself convulsed at the deed, the ground shook, rocks cracked open, and the sky went black. When we come to the events of Easter, we're reminded of just how perhaps scandalous is the right word for Jesus to have given his life on our behalf. How strange and wonderful the old hymn, Oh, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. The reality that Jesus gave himself up for us. And I would present to you tonight that I believe perhaps the climax of history took place not even at Calvary, but in, in a unique way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, that that was really what I learned, at least in my literature classes growing up, was that the climax of any story was the point at which a decision must be made that's going to impact the rest of the tale. It's the decision-making point, and Gethsemane really is the moment in which God and uh, the Father and God the Son interact in such a unique way, and it's clear at that moment that the path is set, and we get a chance to see not only the anguish of Jesus' heart, but the submission that he has to his father and the mission in which they both were committed to going together. Now, I'd like to show you some pictures. There's some people in our, as Mark mentioned, Pastor Mark, there's some folks maybe looking at this live and in person tonight. I'm not sure, you know, what they might be doing, but, uh, but for us here tonight, pictures will just have to do. This is a photochrom image of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane from about 130 years ago. A photochrom is a colored negative, and so this was an old black and white photograph that was colored in. But years ago, there was not uh, the amount of buildings in this area as there are now. And so you get a chance to see the Garden of Gethsemane and specifically at the foot of the Mount of Olives with a little bit less built up around it. And so if you want a clue here, that's where the main area that they think of as the garden would have taken place right there. If you were to look at it nowadays, they have built this uh, church, let's see, it's the Church of All Nations. 
that is built there in that same area. But if you want to see it before it got there, uh, it looked like this. Now, in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, it has that name from Hebrew. The word Gethsemane quite literally means olive press. And so this is the place where the olives would be pressed for the olive oil. And so uh, the, the garden, more than likely, the name comes simply from that. It is the base of the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever seen a really old olive tree, this is what some of them look like in this, in this garden. Now, uh, those who are able to tell how old trees are, I don't know about y'all, I really love old trees. I don't know if anybody gets excited about old trees. That's something I like to see. Uh, you probably think, yeah, that, that sounds about as exciting as you are, Jonathan, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I get a kick out of that. Just thinking, we had a tree in our neighborhood that um, Laura and I, when we would take a walk with the kids, was down kind of in the edge of a little, couple little farms where people had horses, and there was this huge tree that was just one of those trees that was so old it looked dead and alive at the same time. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, we went walking down there a few, few months ago, and all of a sudden they'd cut that tree down. And just you, just you just sort of say, oh, my goodness, I, I'm really going to miss seeing that tree. Uh, we counted the rings, and we got to somewhere near 200. There was a huge gap in the middle, but by our spatial guess, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 years old was how old that tree was. And thinking about, you know, this thing started growing when Abraham Lincoln was just a little boy is a really cool thought, you know, to me. But the Garden of Gethsemane, now they actually say that there are trees in the Garden of Gethsemane that are somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 years old. There are very old trees that are there. Now, more than likely, none of the trees that are there were there in Jesus' day, and the reason for that is because the history of the time period tells us that uh, the Romans destroyed every living thing around Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, but for shortly after that time, many of these trees would still have come from the first couple centuries uh, after the, the crucifixion and, and the resurrection. So another photo of some areas of that. And, and then perhaps a place that resembles just a, a more forgotten part of the garden that might re resemble a little bit more what it looked like in Jesus' day, just a little path with some trees uh, somewhere with no notoriety, just somewhere to go is, is perhaps the kind of way it would have looked in that time period. Now, if you go there, there's people who will sell you tickets and they'll say, well, really, the disciples met and Jesus was praying inside of a cave that was beside the garden and perhaps he came in here and they'd have reasons uh, to tell you why. Outside, you'd also see an area where they've designated a rock. They say, well, this was G the, undoubtedly the place where Jesus prayed uh, and, and asked his father to remove this cup from him. And if you go into the church of all nations, as I mentioned before, there's an exposed bedrock in the middle of the floor that they say, no, this is where Jesus prayed the night he was in the garden of Gethsemane. So at the end of the day, we don't know for sure, but we do see a, a remarkable amount of um, context in the passage, not about the geography of where Jesus prayed within the garden, but about his stance, his attitude, his emotion in the midst of that. A lot of us grew up with pictures of the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane that perhaps might be in your mind. A lot of us in here got enough age on us that pictures hanging in the church, paintings were, were a big part of what we saw, illustrations and otherwise. These are some you may have seen before, Jesus praying near a rock, or I think probably everybody's seen this one, this one too. And some common themes between all of these images are that Jesus, with a clear face, without tears, and an expression that is perhaps slightly solemn but not troubled in any real way, is looking upwards towards heaven, 
And there seems to be a kind of comfort and assurance that we are comfortable with our Savior having. And yet when we read the text, this is not the portrait that it paints. Matthew tells us that Jesus fell on his face and prayed. You know what kind of prayers you pray when you fall on your face? Those aren't thank you for this food prayers. Jesus was troubled, some of the words that were used, some illustrations that I've seen that I think probably more accurately come to what this may have looked like. One here, another here. And so we come to the passage tonight, and I'd like for us to look at Luke 22. We're just going to read verses 39 through 46. That might feel a little bit short compared to what we are used to, but I'd like to read that and then let us say a word of prayer tonight. Luke 22, beginning with verse 39, and Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, tonight as we come to the season of remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us when he didn't have to, Lord, may we be drawn to the garden where Jesus' submission to your will, despite the cost, made all the difference for us. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite songwriters, Rich Mullins, who's with the Lord now, wrote a song from our perspective asking Jesus questions. One of the lines in that song that's always stuck with me goes like this, posing a question to Jesus it, The lyric goes, did you ever know loneliness? Did you ever know need? Do you remember just how long the night can get when you're barely holding on and your friends fall asleep and don't see the blood that's running in your sweat? Jesus went with 12 to the garden. Well, excuse me, went with 11 to the garden. Judas had departed at this point. And they're going to be positioned at the foot of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And they're going to be both looking up at a mountain that stands behind them, as well as looking down to the lower area of the Kidron Valley. That for where they were, more than likely, Jesus would have had a long time watching those torches and those soldiers and the one disciple who had gone away coming towards him and recognizing what was heading his direction. And Jesus there at the base of the Mount of Olives, perhaps as the sovereign son of God, having known all things, could think of all the things that had happened essentially in that spot. 
that the Mount of Olives was the place where Jesus, excuse me, where King David ascended that mountain fleeing Jerusalem because of Absalom, his son, trying to take the kingdom over. And so David rose up that Mount of Olives weeping and wondering whether his life and his kingdom were about to be snuffed out. Jesus would remember Solomon and not only Solomon's wisdom, but Solomon's folly in allowing high places to begin to exist in areas like the Mount of Olives where while there was not concession for idols made in all of Judea, there would be areas where those who wanted to participate could go. And those would move from places of worship to even places of human sacrifice before it was all said and done. The Mount of Olives would be the place that as Jesus thought about prophecy that was in the Old Testament, ultimately about his return in Zechariah 14 where someday God would even split the mountain in two upon his return. Jesus remembered himself giving words of his return in what's usually called the Olivet Discourse. And I think even then Jesus knew that it wasn't going to be too long before he stood again with his disciples and ascended to heaven at that very spot, that same mountain. And so an important place in Jerusalem, an important place in the history of God's dealings with mankind, and now the Son of God, sovereign, unholy, righteous, sovereign and holy, righteous, perfect, there at the base of an olive press, surrounded by olive trees, is communicating with his Father in such a way that all of eternity hangs in the balance. And so the climax of history comes to a little tiny unknown garden, perhaps not seen as terribly important at the time. The uh, first point that I've got here, I don't even know if I put a blank in here, I can't remember, but Gethsemane, from what we can tell, was the olive garden press at the base of the Mount of Olives. Following the Last Supper, Jesus went to his garden, or to this garden, to pray. This is where they went, and at the time of the Passover, this uh, area would not have been in use by those who were cultivating olives, and so it was probably wide open and almost the equivalent of a state park to just go and to hang out, and there were no, uh, you know, no restrictions on, as we think of state parks these days. Bob Cook was telling me fishing stories today about the good old days when you could catch however many fish you wanted, and there was nobody to come by and tell you to throw any back. Some of y'all knew what unrestricted existence was like. I know an older man whose father was a dynamite dealer, and he talked about being an elementary school kid playing with dynamite, throwing throwing it in the lake and watching fish float up after it blew up underwater. You know, some of y'all knew what it was like to have unrestricted existences. I I had a little bit of that, but not near what some of y'all had. Jesus and his disciples are there at a place that was safe to go. They'd observed the Passover meal together. They had sung a hymn, the scripture tells us. So all you men in here who don't like to sing, Jesus sang, the disciples sang, and uh, they exited and went to the garden. Jesus comes there with his disciples to pray. I mentioned already that Matthew and Mark both give their own unique language to this. Matthew tells us that he fell uh, on his face to pray, and, and we see that as he comes there, he's, Jesus is at the same time with and alone. He's in the community of his disciples, but at the same time, he recognizes this is a road he's going to walk alone. Have you ever been there? Been surrounded by people and alone at the same time? There's been roads that other people just couldn't walk with you. The first thing I've got for you tonight is even in community, there's roads we walk alone. And when we walk those roads alone, we've got good company because the Lord Jesus did the same thing. Even in community, there are roads we walk alone. 
Peter's already declared he's not going to leave Jesus. He's going to follow him all the way to the death. And these other disciples, James and John, are the other ones that said, oh, yeah, we can drink the cup that you're going to have to drink. We can baptize, be baptized with the baptism that you'll receive. They didn't understand Jesus was speaking about his death, but they said, sign us up. We're ready to be there if we can sit at your right and your left. And now Peter, James, and John are going to be the closest ones to Jesus while he moves into the garden, first with the 11, then with the three, and then alone. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, a number of ways that we could apply that, but we're not told the exact specifics of what that might best mean, but obviously the disciples are going to fall away. You think about Jesus' statement to Simon Peter that uh, when you have turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers, that Jesus is praying for the disciples at this point, knowing even what they're going to go through, that their faith will hold strong uh, in the midst of this trial, and so he calls on them to pray fervently. But uh, they, they don't seem to do that, do they? You might remember the line that's uh, shown elsewhere that the, uh, the, the, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we're going to see that same thing uh, mentioned. One man that I read this week uh, made this statement about it. Spiritual eagerness is often accompanied by carnal weakness. Spiritual eagerness is often accompanied by carnal weakness. When were the disciples most susceptible to failing? Well, at the moment, they'd made the biggest promises to Jesus about what they were going to do. Pride goes before the fall, and the same is true for us as well, isn't it? That when we think ourselves to be the best, often we find that we're closest to failing, needing the Lord's forgiveness. The second thing I've got on your sheet tonight is one of the most beautiful blessings of the whole story. It's not wrong to ask God to deliver you from what you're facing. Even Jesus did that. It is not wrong to ask God to deliver you from what you're facing. Even Jesus did that. Isn't that a marvelous comfort in our lives? Sometimes we're, we're, we're sort of taught accidentally. We, we get the, the mindset that somehow what we're supposed to do is just say, well, I'm not going to bother the Lord. Whatever I get is what I get, and he knows better than I know, so I don't need to take to him my honest requests and my honesty. Listen, the Lord Jesus went to his Father and said, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? And he balanced that great truth that we lean on God's will and not our will, and yet at the same time, we can make our request known to God. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful? And we don't do it as a client who's approaching his attorney. We do it as a child who's approaching his father. Amen. Mark tells us that one of the words that Jesus used here is that familiar word for father, Abba. Often translate, probably the closest translation we could say is daddy. That it wasn't father. My children have never called me father. They don't ever do that. But I can't tell you the times passing by in the hallway in the dark where a scared child's called out, Daddy. And here we have a father and son, the father and son interaction recorded not only theologically and doctrinally, but relationally for us. God the Son and God the Father, and the Son is saying, Daddy, if, if there's any way that I don't have to go through this, can we take another road? And we're brought into that. It's been said that the, the early church, for some, sometimes what people try to claim is, well, the early church must have come up with the message of the Bible in this way or in that way. Uh, there's so many holes in that kind of argument. But can I tell you, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of those passages that no one who was trying to sell Jesus as the Son of God would have invented on their own. 
Because what we gain is a window into Jesus' emotion that is beautiful and comforting for us, and at the same time we see the sovereignty of God and the dependence on His will that the Lord Jesus gives at the same time. It's not wrong to ask God to deliver you from what you're facing. Even Jesus did that. Uh, Number three, you know, other people will sometimes let us down, and we'll sometimes let others down, but God never lets us down. Other people will sometimes let you down. Sometimes we will let others down. But praise God, he never lets us down. Sometimes his time is not our time. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But none of us have a a right to claim anything against the Lord. The Lord's good. and He takes care of us. One of these days we're going to stand before him and the refrain will go out that Jesus has done all things well. There'll be no indictment that can come against him. So God never lets us down, but other people let us down, and we let others down. If you're in here tonight and you're saying, well, I never let anybody down, can I tell you, you're in the category that's most likely to have let people down. (laughs) So we've all done it. We're all frail. We're all broken. There's been times, probably not intentionally, but any of you who've ever had somebody near you walk through an, an, an incredible amount of grief, difficulty, pain, whatever it is, how many times have you or I said in the years, I just don't know what to say? And if we're not careful, we, we remove ourselves from a situation where we're not sure what to say, and all of a sudden, those people who are hurting the most, they're, they're looking around, and no one seems to be there for them. Sometimes as Christians, the best thing we can do is close our mouths and open our hands and go try to serve and be uh, love and light however we can. People don't need a sermon, but they do need someone that has compassion. Paul said it this way, bear one another's burdens. And there's a way in which we're called to do that that makes a big impact. And so Jesus has some guys there that should have been bearing his burdens, but they weren't. There he was alone, face down, weeping, sweating blood because of the anxiety. The words that are used throughout the Gospels are very interesting They're extreme words in the sense of what they convey. They're translated a number of different ways because of the complexity and the emotion that is given uh, in the words that are used. The word agony is used here by Luke. Uh, We see anguish and other words that are used at times in other gospels. Some other translations that uh, the New Testament has in these passages, terrified surprise, shuddering awe, amazement amounting to consternation, troubled, great shock, my heart is ready to break with grief. The impact of the words used, one writer says, are incalculable and carries its own power to stab the reader wide awake. One of the most common words used is horror. Horror and anguish have seized me, one translation says, from the mouth of Jesus. And so as Jesus is walking through this and he's walking through this alone, he's able to be honest with his father. He's able to call out to him and to ask uh, if there be another way, if this cup could pass from him as he's being in agony, uh, he prays for, the, for this. And when he comes uh, to his father here in verse 42, we see really his prayer simplified more so than we see in Matthew and Mark. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't it interesting that the young leper who fell down before Jesus' feet at the start of the gospel says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean? Jesus says, I am willing. There in the garden, Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. 
What he ultimately is going to hear is that God was not willing. And when I say not willing, it was not in his will. It was not the desire of God that that happened. Isaiah says this, looking forward to what would take place not only in the garden but at the cross, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, it didn't do that because of God's feelings towards his son. It was because of the great love who he had for us. And it wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we earned it. It wasn't because we were worth loving. It was because of the greatness of the love of God. And so in that, Jesus is walking the road that the Father and he have set forth in that, but Jesus coming to the cup that he is going to drink, not only the pain of the cross, not only the whip and the crown of thorns, not only the scorn and the rejection of people, but the fact that our sin, everything we've ever done wrong was going to be weighing down the Lord, that he was going to be uh, feeling the punishment of our sin on the cross, each one of our sin. And all of that was a piece of his suffering. And we can't imagine what that was like. In the early centuries of Christianity, people who were going to be rounded up to be martyred in the Roman Colosseum and otherwise fed to the lions, set on fire and otherwise, often they would go to the lions, they would go to the stake singing and joyous at the, at the heavenly inheritance they were about to receive. How is it and what is the difference that early Christians would go singing joyful songs all the way to their martyrdom, but the son of God is weeping in the garden. The difference is that Jesus Christ was not only going to bear the cross, he was not only going to bear the crown of thorns and the rejection of men, he was going to carry your and my sin. And for an eternity of eternities, we won't be able to wrap our hearts and minds around how great a cost that was. And so for us, the Lord Jesus in the garden is weeping and he's crying out to his father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Just like Elijah in 1 Kings 19, under a broom tree, praying to die that an angel comes to minister to. We see angelic visitors throughout a number of places in the Bible, but an angel comes even to minister to the king of heaven in this moment. Being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood. You've probably heard before this is a legitimate medical condition for extreme stress and anxiety that uh, the sweat glands can actually begin to, to literally uh, sweat blood. And so this is what's happening to the Lord Jesus. Even there, he rose from prayer. He came to his disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know, in all of that, Jesus moves towards the will of God as being most important. And we can pray, taking our requests to God and making them known to him and being able to say, Lord, please, will you help me in this situation? God, will you rescue me from this? Father, will you extend your hand and raise me out of the pit that I am in. Lord, will your help be very present with me? And we can make very specific what that looks like. And at the same time, we see Jesus balance that. If there be any way that this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That as much as the Lord's prayer is a model for us, taking our requests and making them known to God. And yet at the same time, being able to say, but Lord, I know you know better than I know. And whatever I got to walk through, I know that's better than what I would come up with, even if I don't understand it right now. Not my will, but your will. There's a quote at the bottom of your page by a man named D.A. Carson. I think it's just wonderful. In the first garden, the Garden of Eden, 
Essentially, not your will, but mine by Adam changed paradise to a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. And now, not my will, but yours by Jesus Christ brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. So to sum that that up in short, human history and the fall of mankind came when Adam and Eve said, nevertheless, not your will, but mine. And it wasn't until Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, that the cycle broke and the turn that was needed was made and the path to the cross was set in such a beautiful way. So when we come to Easter, remember not only Good Friday, but what it was like for Jesus to look to his father. And can I just say that as you've got folks in your life who would say, well, aren't there many ways to heaven? And wouldn't there be some way that someone could be seen as righteous apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ or however they would say it? Isn't there some other road besides Jesus to heaven? I think one of the greatest passages to be able to walk people through is Gethsemane. Because if there was any other way, even as Jesus asks this himself, then anything but the cross could have happened. The cross is an example that there was no other way as good as any evidence you'll find in Scripture anywhere. And so Jesus calling out to his Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass, and then submitting to the will, knowing that that was his plan all along, is one of the greatest places we can go to and say, as Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him and what he accomplished alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that because of what Jesus Christ has done, that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So, Lord, may we remember the call of Jesus to his dad for rescue and deliverance, but at the same time, even in his sovereignty, submissive to your will and knowing that this was the cup by which he would drink and the path that he would walk. And he did that not only for the greatness of your name, your goodness and your righteousness to be known, but because you love us and you have made much of us though we don't deserve it. So Father, would you remind us, would you encourage us and may the love that is born out of that draw us to obedience and a greater knowledge of you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last blank, excuse me. Right prayer moves us to look into God's will. Almost had a revolt on my hands there. I apologize for that. Right prayer moves us to look into God's will.